From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. Today, we'll look at the life and legacy of Rosalind Carter, First Lady of the United States, dedicated advocate for mental health reform, wife to Jimmy Carter for 77 years. I'm Tia Mitchell in Washington. Mrs. Carter died less than two days after the Carter Center announced she would be going into home hospice care, but she was surrounded by family. The AJC's Ernie Suggs, who's covered the Carter family for a decade, will join us from Plains, where the city is mourning the loss of a favorite citizen. And State Rep. Mary Margaret Oliver is here, too to recall her memories of Mrs. Carter. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. Tia Mitchell will be joining us from Washington in just a moment. And of course, as you can imagine, we're going to spend a good amount of time uh, on the show today talking about the passing of uh, Rosalind Carter uh, yesterday afternoon. Ernie Suggs, who has covered the Carters for the AJC for the past decade, uh, is joining us uh, uh, from Plains, and we'll talk to Ernie in a couple of minutes. And we also have State Representative Mary Margaret Oliver with us today. Mary Margaret, as you'll hear as we move forward in the show, has had an interesting relationship uh, with Mrs. Carter over the years, including a shared uh, uh, passion for improving mental health services um, in, in the state of Georgia and across the country. Ernie, let, let me turn to you, and I'm very grateful. I know how busy you are, are going to be down there in Plains today. But when I heard about Mrs. Carter's passing yesterday, here, here's the first thing I thought about. We are now living through one of the uh, meanest and most brutal presidential campaigns that any of us has ever seen. And when we think about Rosalind Carter, it gives us this moment where we can pause and reflect on someone who is involved in politics, who brought with her, like her husband, a certain amount of grace and generosity to the role that she played and, of course, the role her husband played. They truly believed in trying to make the country and then in the aftermath of the White House, the world, a better place. And that's a wonderful thing for us a chance to have a chance to think about on, as again, we're living through such a dark time in politics. Would you agree with that? Oh, most definitely. As you mentioned, I'm in Plains, Georgia right now. And I think that, you know, I was I was talking to someone earlier today. It all comes from here. You know, you talk about small town values. And what that means. And I think a lot of people, particularly when you say about mean politics, a lot of people use a phrase like small, small town values to skew what that actually means and to distort what that actually means in, in favor of their ideology or thinking. But I think if you really define it, she and her husband are the epitome of that. You know, the way they're respected here, the way they never really left, aside from the fact when he was in the White House or when he was in the governor's mansion. And the things that they learned and picked up here in this small town are the things that they carry to the White House, things that they carry throughout the world. And that's to help people, you know, to help, you know, they, you know, they eradicate their, their, you know, they, they worked on elections. They, they worked to eradicate diseases, which is, you know, you don't even think about that, you know, but they've, they're, they're one step away from eradicating a getting worm disease, which is amazing, remarkable. 
and they're doing it from Plains, Georgia, and they're doing it with the mindset of helping people um, uh, living through Christ, living through their religion, living through being kind to people. You know, it's just, you know, you turn on the news every day, uh, being in Atlanta, you see it every day. Uh, the, the world can be a, a cruel place, and the Carters always kind of epitomize kindness and, and joy and what the world could be and what the world could look like. Ernie, um, obviously, uh, the announcement of her death yesterday afternoon, I, be- I think I'm right, caught all of us uh, uh, in, the, in the world of journalism off guard. But um, apparently the family was gathered. Can you tell us a little bit about how this unfolded? We know that the Carter Center just announced on Friday that she was going into home hospice, and yet within two days we learned of her death. Can you help us understand the events over the last day or so? Sure. Um, I don't know uh, if it caught everyone off guard. Well, death is always a surprise. Um, and I think what you're what you're meaning by that is that President Carter went into hospice on February the 18th of this year, and he's still alive and kicking. And, you know, hopefully he'll be around for another five years or so to reach his 100th birthday. The Carter Center announced on Thursday that Mrs. Carter was going into hospice. Um, we didn't know if that meant that it was imminent or if that meant that she was going to be around for another year. As you know, in May, the family announced that she had dementia and that she was, um, you know, cognitively uh, diminished a bit. Um, so we knew that she was sick. We knew that President Carter was sick. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, with hospice situations, I think with the announcement of her having gone into hospice and dying two days later versus the announcement of President Carter in February and still being around, that lets your let let your listeners know that the hospice situation is fluid. The hospice situation varies in every patient. My mother went through it. Um, a lot of us, as we're getting older, you know, Bill, you and I are getting older. I'm finally, you know, reaching your gray hair status. As our parents <laughs> are getting older, you know, we're dealing with that uh, ourselves personally, and it always varies. So I think that her death, while shocking to us and while sad. Uh, it wasn't totally unexpected, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but, um, you know, when they announced that she was going into hospice, we kind of all knew that it was going to happen at some point. My my point um, is I think uh, we did not know. I think I'm told now that the family had already gathered in planes mm-hmm. to be with her, which I don't think we were all aware of. Were they there uh, as she passed away? Yeah, they were there. They're, the family was there. The family has been a constant. Throughout the whole process, since you know, since both of the the parents have uh, gotten ill, so there's always someone here, whether it's um, Chip or any of the other four children or any of the grandchildren stopping by. So there's always someone here, and the constant in that is that the Carters, obviously, they're together. They were always together, holding hands, watching the Braves, mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately, watching the Falcons, eating peanut butter <laughs> ice cream. Um, you know, uh, enjoying cupcakes. So they were there holding hands every day. And it's just, you know, they're married for 77 years. Think about this. Mrs. Carter is 90, died at the age of 96. President Carter met her when she was a baby mm-hmm. and commented on how beautiful she was as, as a three-year-old. So she knew her husband for 96 years for nearly a century, which is amazing in and of itself. 
In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Tia Mitchell, you have uh, joined us, and and I'm glad you're here, obviously. I think I'm right that you've just uh, done your um, early morning on on your C- on C-SPAN, where you uh, take calls from uh, uh, listeners, and I'm wondering what people had to say about the passing of Rosalind Carter as you heard from them this morning on your show at C-SPAN. Hey, Bill, good morning. Good morning. And uh, Ernie, thank you for joining us. And oh, thank of course, you. Representative Oliver. And yeah, we spent the first month, first month, the first hour of Washington Journal this morning talking about Rosalind Carter, um, having people call in and share their thoughts and their remembrances of her. And we have, and I'm sure you've heard this too, Ernie, you know, a lot of people, two main two main things. Number one, that they felt that Jimmy Carter didn't get a fair shake, you know, that his presidency, uh, their reflections are are showing that he was a stronger president than he gets credit for. But also that Jimmy and Rosalind Carter show us what can be done in your senior years, in your years of retirement, and that they had so much impact after the White House that I think a lot of older Americans look to for, you know, hope and motivation that, you know, it you might lose your job or move on or grow older, but that doesn't mean life is over. There's still so much more to life, even in your golden years. Um, yeah. I mean, go ahead, Ernie. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, us, you know, Bill and, and, and Tia living here in Georgia, we get a lot of comments, e- emails about President Carter's presidency from people who did not agree with him or did not agree with what his work was. And you're right. He does not get a lot of credit, but I do think he gets a lot of credit for being a good, decent Mm -hmm. human being. I don't think that when, you know, the final history books are written about the United States, there's going to be a better man who has ever been in the white house than Jimmy Carter. I mean, the stuff that he's done, the stuff that he's, the way that his life has lived and played out post-presidency it's been remarkable. It's been an example of what an American should be. So while his presidency doesn't get the attention that it deserves, his life and his legacy and he who he is as a person should and will, hopefully. Um, Ernie, you've written some beautiful pieces about the Carters, uh, um, especially in the later years of their lives. And and I want to I'm going to steal from you for okay. a moment here to bring in uh, uh, Representative Mary Margaret Oliver, who whose cause, I think, above all others in the legislature, especially in recent years, has been improving mental health services for the people of Georgia. Mary Margaret, in a piece that Ernie uh, published about Mrs. Carter the other day, he retold really a very moving story. He talked about the fact that Rosalind Carter was out in 1970 campaigning for her husband. Early in the morning, she was out in front of an Atlanta uh, cotton mill as the shift, overnight shift, was coming off duty 
shaking hands. We know how that drill works with uh, candidates and their supporters, their spouses. And an older woman uh, walked past her and appeared to be very tired. And Mrs. Carter said to her, I hope you'll go home and get some rest. And the woman said in Ernie's telling of this story, I'd love to do that, but I have a mentally challenged daughter at home, and so I have to go home and take care of her. And the way Ernie relates that story is to say that from that moment on, she, he said Mrs. Carter thought about that woman all day long. So the people who think that it wasn't until she got to the White House that she really took on mental health as a crucial issue um, don't understand. It was much earlier that it became something she really cared passionately about. That was a lovely story that Ernie gave us. And I'm, I reflect on the length of her commitment to mental health. She, in one of the pieces I've been reading, uh, Jimmy Carter had a cousin who had gone to Central State Hospital. Those of us that are native Georgians grew up with the image of Central State Hospital, which was the largest, then, the word then used was asylum, 12,000 patients in Milledgeville that were alleged to be mentally ill. That, that image, that era, uh, was with us as childhood gone on. The phenomenon of her life of public service, all of which every issue, every era was about mental health, but every other aspect, she was 18 years old as a Navy wife. Mm-hmm. Navy wives in those eras were part of the team of being in public service with your military husband. Obviously, they were. she was unique and history-breaking in the way she was a partner with Governor Carter and President Carter. The criticisms she got at different stages of going to national security meetings being in cabinet meetings, having her office fully in the White House. It's unbelievable to reflect, again, in these times where self-interest seems to be prominent in too many days with too many politicians, that you see the length of her service, the commitment of her service, and the way in which she did touch people and people touched her. It's not unusual for those of us going out and about in our political lives to be approached by people who tell us their problems. Probably a lot of those people do go to the spouse instead of the politician. And I can see her thousands of different times listening to that person who wanted to reach out to somebody in power, somebody who was close to power, and tell them the personal story. Uh, In my recent years of working with mental health, those folks come to me. They come to Todd Jones. We've talked personally about the way in which people reach out to us. And she was always open to that. Uh, I met Governor Carter and First Lady Carter when I was in law school, Mm -hmm. which is when they were in the governor's office, which is astoundingly number of long years ago. (laughs) And I was a Rosalind Carter fellow at Emory, uh, spent time with them and around them in their public service lives. And, of course, Jason Carter's, uh, he was my senator, and they politicked around our Senate area for him in a different stage of their campaigning life. The length of their marriage, the length of their partnership, the commitment that she demonstrated, 
is just astounding. And to reflect upon it as a native Georgian, I'm thinking about all the different eras she touched. Ernie, um, her, her work in mental health, once she got to the White House, uh, she did, as, as Mary Margaret pointed out, there was a, there was a good amount of criticism Uh, Both of the Carters were sort of unwelcome in Washington by the Washington establishment, as we well know. They were the outsiders. Uh, Hamilton Jordan, their chief of staff, uh, basically was not willing to interact in the most positive ways with that Washington establishment. Carter didn't either. But Mrs. Carter also drew particular criticism because she did become an activist first lady. She broke the mold. She didn't just host receptions and uh, walk on the arm of her husband to various <laughs> events. She got deeply involved in his political career, as as uh, Mary Margaret uh, points out, going to cabinet meetings. Um, but mental health was it became a huge issue for her, and she did have some important breakthroughs in that area. Yes, yes. I mean, she. You know, she. She was one of the first first ladies, if not the first, to have a uh, an office in the White House in the east east um, east wing of the White House. So she went to Washington D.C. from Plains, Georgia, and from Atlanta, Georgia, from the governor's mansion, with an intention on doing something positive. She did not want to sit around and 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 just go to tea parties and, and rose garden events. She wanted to be an active participant in the White House. She wanted to make a difference, and she saw that you know with her with her with her background with her back ground and the, the story that uh, representative Oliver tells about or I told about um meeting people who were suffering from mental health um pro- not problems but mental health issues and conditions as well as caregiving she felt that that was important and she felt it was important and it's always the, it's a dangerous word to use the word activist she was just, she was an activist first lady and T- she wanted to do that TM? yeah I think yeah you're on mute we're losing you Tim I just want to mention another thing that I found really interesting as, you know, we're all reading more about um, Rosalind Carter and the Carter's legacy, a way that we talked about them kind of skirting what was considered the norm in Washington when they arrived at the White House in something that seems as inconsequential (coughs) as on the morning of the inauguration parade, you know, it's January in Washington, it's super cold outside, and they dare to walk some of the parade route, get outside of the limousine and walk so that the people could see them and wave to them. And inside the Beltway, that was considered, you know, uncouth. It was not proper. The elites didn't like it. But a lot of people thought that was part of their charm and part of their ability to connect with people and think now I think it would be the other way if the president and the first family in the inauguration parade didn't walk a little bit so people could see them. They would probably be accused in modern in today's times of being a little bit stuck up. Like, what do you mean they didn't get out and walk? What do you mean they sat in the limousine the whole parade route? What's the point of having a parade if you can't see them? But they were so at that time, that was somewhat controversial. Well, you know what, Tia? That reminds me of this past summer and a very different kind of parade. Ernie Suggs, as we well know, uh, President Carter went into hospice in February, home mm-hmm. hospice. And and I think it's fair to say that in many ways he was there to help Rosalind through the final stages of her dementia. And we know 
Uh, the stories about them sitting and eating peanut butter ice cream together at night are really lovely stories. Um, but even though we thought we would never probably see them in public together again, that didn't happen. They got in a car and rode through downtown yeah. Plains uh, just a few months ago. Tell us that story, Ernie. Yeah, well, first, let's go back a second. You know, you mentioned about the fact that, you know, we don't see them a lot. We didn't see them a lot. But in 2022, they rode through the Peanut Festival, and that was one of the last times people saw them in person. There were a few incidents where, like, one of their birthdays would happen, and they would sit out on their porch, and people would drive by. So the 2023 Peanut Festival was a total shocked to everybody when president carter and rosen carter rides through in a you know a chevy uh, bla a black chevy suv in the peanut festival waving to people and again this is an example of of a small town and this peanut festival means a lot and the carters mean a lot and so for these two powers to get together and ride through this festival that means so much to the community was powerful it was the last time uh the masses had seen them have seen them together or would see them together. So it was a very powerful, and now we see a very poignant moment here in Plains. Mary Margaret, um, I arrived in Georgia in Atlanta in 1983 and um, was very fortunate that I got to spend some time covering the Carters from early on. And in many ways, they were still recovering in 83 from that, that loss of the White House, which, by the way, <laughs> Jimmy Carter said he had no hard feelings about it. Rosalind Carter said, well, I had enough bitterness for both of us. But the, the reason I mention this is they were still in a transition period and they were beginning to think through just what they wanted their legacy, not just their legacy, but their life's work to be after the White House. And that's when the Carter Center, uh, they came together with ideas about that, working on elections, making sure there were fair elections in democratic nations. Um, Ernie mentioned their global health um, initiative, Mrs. Carter's mental health work. I'd love to talk just for a minute about their work in global health. In, in, the, in the history, uh, in contemporary history, only one disease has ever been eradicated, and that's smallpox. Right. The Carters took on, through their Global Health Initiative, guinea worm, which is a pernicious, awful, very painful disease. And they have come closer to eradicating guinea worm, as Ernie pointed out, as any disease since um, smallpox was eradicated. And their dedication to fighting that, their together, is such a beautiful example of how much they really did care about the lives of people around the world. The Carter Center is a model. It's a model for any president, for any powerful person, about making a lifetime commitment. One of the realities of them coming home after 1980 was, they've said this publicly, they didn't have any money. Mm. They'd ignored the property. They'd ignored the business. So they had to reorder their life, which included living in planes for the rest of their life through 2023, through today, and planning the Carter Center. The Carter Center... Uh, phenomena of public health and elections and mental health, the three most prominent or visible uh, contributions internationally. It's fascinating. Carter's, uh, Mrs. Carter and President Carter, who traveled together almost exclusively, been to hundreds of countries for elections. Mm -hmm. And the public health phenomena, which grew with the Rollins Public Health School and its 
President Carter's partnership with Emory has been significant throughout his all the Carter Center, you know, and of course the mental health that she led and continues to lead. Uh, I think the press, one of the things is reporting that uh, if she's to be remembered, she wants contributions to the Carter Center yeah. Mental Health Project. Yeah. Um, er, Ernie Suggs, I. I I know you've got to get. To, you're going to have to leave in a moment because you've got a lot of work to do there. And we should point out you're down in Plains with a team of AJC uh, reporters yes. who will be covering. So just from you, a last word, and then Tia and Mary Margaret and I um, can continue talking a bit more about Mrs. Carter, and we'll bring in Raul Bali of WABE to join us. But so Ernie, you're. You've gotten to know the Carters as well as anyone who covers them in the last decade. Give us your final thoughts before you have to leave us about Mrs. Carter. I just think she was a wonderful person. I mean, I think, you know, it's 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 often it's often as journalists, we get jaded. We get cold about who we meet and who we deal with and how we deal with people. But they're also they're also, you know, to be quite honest with you, they're also people that we like. Mm. They're also people that we care about. Um, even though we have to cover them hard and fairly, just as we do everyone. And I think the Carters, Mrs. Carter and President Carter were two of those people. If I can just say one thing, you know, I often told President Carter that my mother took me with her to vote for him in 1976. (laughs) And that was my first experience as a president, uh, dealing with the president. And I remember the last time I saw him in person, he asked about my mother. And at that time, my mother was dealing with a form of dementia. This is before Mrs. Carter and everything. And he asked to call my mother. And I thought that that was just the most amazing thing about this guy. I didn't mention it, but he said, hey, how's your mother doing? And when I told him that what she was dealing with, he asked to call her. So I'm always going to look at them as a, uh, as a, as a team and as, 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 as an example of who we can be if we decide to be our better angels. And I think that the Carters both exemplify that. Ernie, your writing about the Carters has been just so special to read because um, now that Mrs. Carter has passed, tributes about her will come in by the score. But you've been writing lovely pieces about the, the, the life of Jimmy and Rosalind Carter as they've sat together at home in Plains for this past year, basically now, and it's just been such a pleasure to read you. I look oh, forward to the much. writing that we'll see from you and our colleagues in Plains and elsewhere in the days ahead. Thank you so much for being with us, Ernie. Well, thank you very much for having me. You guys do a great show, and I appreciate being on. <laughs> Thanks. Let's do this. Let's take a break, and when we come back, Tia Mitchell, of course, is with us. So is State Representative Mary Margaret Oliver, and we'll be joined by WABE politics reporter Raul Bali. You're listening to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Bill Nygut. 
Every morning, delivered to your email, you can get George's must-read newsletter from the AJC Politics team. The new Politically Georgia Morning newsletter is your daily jolt of news insights and analysis from Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Adam Van Brimmer, housed under our new brand, Politically Georgia. There's no better time to subscribe at AJC.com newsletters. We're very happy to welcome back to the show WABE politics reporter Raul Bali. Raul, um, you're brand new to the show today, so let me just say thank you for being here today. Good morning, everybody. Let's talk a little bit more about Mrs. Carter's legacy, if we may. Um, Tia, it's interesting that here in Georgia, and Mary Margaret can talk about this in just a couple of minutes, um, we're still dealing with a gap in mental health services uh, that, um, you know, have left the state behind other states in the country. A couple of sessions ago, the legislature did make some significant improvements, but all of the big issues are not resolved here. And Tia, one of the things that I think is interesting about Mrs. Carter is that parity in terms of insurance for people with mental health illnesses was a crucial issue for her. And it, in 2015, uh, Kathleen Sebelius, then Secretary of Health and Human Services, attended a mental health uh, forum at the Carter Center in which she announced that the federal government was, government was inter- instituting a rule that health insurance companies had to cover mental health illnesses in the same way they covered uh, other illnesses like, say, cancer and diabetes. And yet, uh, uh, Tia, we know that mental health services are still lagging behind. Mrs. Carter, by the way, let's listen to what she said about her work in mental health, and then I'll bring you into the conversation. Well, I hope my legacy continues more than just First Lady, because Carter Center's been an integral part of our lives, I would think, and our motto is waging peace, fighting disease, and building hope. And um, I hope that I have contributed something to mental health uh, issues and help improve a little bit people, the lives of people living with mental illnesses. I have had great um, opportunities for so long now. And to go to Africa or one of those countries, we have programs in 70-something countries. We go to Africa uh, two, three times a year and to go to those villages, and now things are coming to fruition. We've been working on all these years, like we've almost eradicated guinea worm. I mean, to go to a village where there's no longer guinea worm, it is a celebration. Just to see, to go back when it's gone from a village or almost gone, and the hope it gives to them, that it, most of the time it's the first thing they have ever seen that was successful. And it's just so wonderful just to see the hope on their faces that something good is happening. (laughs) I didn't mean to get emotional. She, um, I didn't realize that she talked in that in that conversation about such a wide range of her activities. I, I, um, but she does did care deeply about mental health issues. And and T, one of the things I think about is how much more cynical our politics are today. And when you hear Rosalind, Rosalind Carter give such an emotional interview, it really does seem to be a stark difference from what you experience on the Hill most days of the week. 
Well, I would, you know, I would think that Rosalind Carter would say she would probably want us to focus on, quite frankly, the many members of Congress who are working hard, who do have a point of view, who do have things they're trying to accomplish. Now, there's frustration. Um, are there some members of Congress who the the money and the platform and the partisanship and the anger seems to drive them more than others. And they tend to have a platform that shows kind of sometimes the worst uh, view of Congress, the dysfunction of Congress. But that uh, even members of Congress today will tell you that that's frustrating to them because they are, you know, trying to make a difference. And we talk a lot about that on this show in, in in our uh, Politically Georgia newsletter, we're always trying to highlight, you know, Mary Margaret Oliver, Representative Oliver, you know, can talk about the things she's tried to do. Now, partisanship and, and a lot of things get in the way. Um, and I want to say, going back to First Lady Carter, a lot of what she did for mental health, yes, the policy, but also the stigma. And I think we take that for granted that you know, we used to talk about mental illness differently than we talk about it now. You mentioned, Bill, treating mental illness just like any other type of physical illness. That's different than what it used to be perceived back in the day. Even no longer institutionalizing people the way we once did is a big shift in a U.S. policy. And she receives at least partial credit for some of those shifts. Raul, um, let me bring you into the conversation because you spend a great time covering a, a great deal of time covering uh, the legislature, and um, uh, Mary Margaret can join us on this in just a moment. But you were there uh, session before last when then Speaker Ralston, working with Mary Margaret Oliver as a Democrat across the aisle and a couple of other leaders, uh, were able to pass the first major mental health care reform bill that we've seen in the uh, state of Georgia. But Raul, uh, this last session, efforts to continue that work uh, failed. Um, and and I know Mary Margaret's gonna talk in a minute about what needs to be done next, but give us your thoughts on what you've watched unfold in the legislature over the last couple of sessions. Let me first give a, a little bit of hope to folks, because you know, Tia talks about and everybody talks about the divide. You know, we saw during the work to put together House Bill 1013, the massive mental health uh, uh, care and behavioral health reform package, you saw the flashes of, of people working together on both sides. Um, you So many times you had lawmakers pull us to the side and either talk about their own personal stories, about what they've gone through in their life, or a constituent, you know, this constituent came to me and they were just looking for help. And so you saw that. And and I can't tell you the number of conversations I had with, with Chairwoman Oliver, uh, like on the fourth floor of the, of the state capitol, going through all the little things and the big things and and the number of lawmakers who would pull us aside to, to work on that. Yes, when it came to this year's package to kind of move things forward it got caught up in the, in, in the world of politics, and, and, and it's definitely something um, that Representative Oliver can address of what it got caught up with and what will be tried in the upcoming session. But, you know, and, and we also talk about, you know, uh, uh, 
Representative Oliver mentioned Central State Hospital and the institutionalization of people. You know, last week, the Atlanta Press Club honored Jack Nelson, mm. who did amazing journalism, won a Pulitzer Prize by what was going on at Central State Hospital in the 50s and the 60s. He did that for the Atlanta Journal, I mean, the Atlanta Constitution. So it's not been that far since. Georgians were institutionalized at Central State Hospital down in Milledgeville to where we are now, you know, where people are, you know, the coverage now. And and one other thing I do want to mention is the Carter Center's Mental Health Fellowships for Journalists. That's Mm -hmm. something else. This whole idea of stigma also working on the reporting and what was done in journalism, Um, you know, the the goal there was to improve that reporting, to make it more in-depth. So. That's a different role that the Carters took in in the area of mental health and stigma of improving the reporting. So back at the Capitol, you know, and, and Representative Oliver can talk about what, what the goals are in the upcoming session. Mary Margaret, let me start with, first of all, uh, the fact that I'd love to know whether Mrs. Carter's work in mental health was an inspiration to you in many ways. And you pointed out you were a Rosalind Carter Fellow at Emory. I'm not quite sure what 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 that meant, and I'd love for you to tell us. But but then also talk. You you say always that the most important issue in mental health here in Georgia is parity. Talk about all of that for a moment. Rosalind Carter's consistent commitment to stigma removal of stigma and parity in delivering of service was an example of the long and hard and uphill battle that anybody in policy, anybody within a family with a tragedy of severe mental illness, it's a long haul. It's a slog. It was during President uh, George Bush, 2008, that parity first began to be talked about Mm -hmm. in regulations. And then at the end of the 2020, as part of one of the budget 2,000-page documents at the end of the Trump administration, there was, again, a new effort to codify, regulate, enforce parity, and 1013 picked up on that federal statute, and parity was the number one issue to David Ralston. When David Ralston talked about his commitment to mental health reform, which is ongoing and will be a long path, he talked to always about parity. And when we were in the back room in the final negotiations, the final hours were about the language of parity. Now, going forward at 23 and 24, 1013 sets forth various deadlines on uh, responsibilities on the insurance commissioner. And Republican Todd Jones, who is my is what David Ralston called us the two co-pilots yeah. of his bill, uh, we met with Commissioner King, John King, recently on the deadline set forth in 1013 about what the insurance commissioner's new duties are to enforce parity. Parallel to parity is the issue of stigma. Rosalind Carter never failed to mention the phenomenal obstacle that stigma related, and it relates to substance abuse as well as severe mental illness, and she was always conscious of saying that. She said in more than one time I heard her, if we could remove the stigma of mental illness, we would make enormous progress. So going forward into the 24 session at the Georgia Capitol, we will be actively again working on issues of parity, making sure that the deadlines of the bill that we passed in 22 are met. 
We're also going to be reestablishing the funding that was held up in part by Governor Kemp in relation to new funding. We've probably over $200 million of new money in the last two budget cycles. Despite these efforts, and they're granular and they're day-to-day, like Rosalind Carter, consistently looking at the little issues that build towards big issues, uh, we will be working again in 2024 to restore the funding, to enforce parity, and to deal with the crisis mental health issues, opportunity for services across the state. Our emergency rooms are the last place that a family wants to be mm. with a severely mentally ill person. Raul, um, I, I want to read you a quote uh, from Rosalind Carter about parity. She said this, I often have said that if insurance covered mental health illness the way other diseases like cancer or diabetes are covered, there would be less stigma against these diseases diseases, and we would all benefit from healthier mothers, brothers, workers, and friends. It's a powerful statement, uh, Raul. And by the way, I said Kathleen Sebelius uh, uh, announced her rule in 2015. It was 2013, and I just made a mistake on that, and I, don't, I want to correct it. But it's a pow- her statement was a very powerful statement that had an impact on federal regulation. And state regulation. And state you know, regulation. Because that was the point of that, you know, parity was being, you know, enforced elsewhere, both with, you know, private health insurance and also, you know, government health insurance like uh, like Medicaid. So the question is, why wasn't that happening already? There was so much attention and so many conversations, you know, at the Capitol about parity. But, you know, some of the other conversations were about like mental health teams with law enforcement. You know, you, you you know, Chairwoman Oliver talks about, you know, what's happening in hospitals. Also, what first responders deal with. You know, there was a, a great conversation in the Capitol with the team from Forsyth County um, that deals with mental health emergencies. And, and we as reporters learned so much about what's going on with mental health care, mental health response, whether it was at the hospital level, law enforcement, what's happening in our local county jails. So we learned so much. And, and, and as these are all things that I, I believe will continue to be on the table at the Capitol. Tia, we're going to get to a break. But before we do, I want to give you a last chance because we're going to move on to another subject that actually I think Rosalind Carter would be quite interested in. But um, we're very privileged here in Georgia to have gotten to cover the Carter's close up. You did certainly before you moved to the Washington beat when you were in the DeKalb County beat and uh, you would have uh, more information about the Carters and many people around the country. So I'd love to hear your final reflections before we move on thinking about the loss of Mrs. Carter and what her life meant to all of us. So I'll try to make it quick. I actually... I moved to Atlanta to work for the AJC in 2017. Hadn't really covered the Carters much, even though I did actually write a story about a big uh, political figure in Florida, uh, then state Senator Arthenia Joyner, who made the trip to Plains. And I that was really my first understanding of the post Carter and, and all the people going to Maranatha on Sunday mm. mornings and things like that. 
But when I moved to Georgia, I remember remarking, I couldn't believe how active they still were. You know, (laughs) this was 2017. They're both in their 90s. At that time, they were still building habitat houses. And I was like, wow, you know, I didn't know. And I went to Plains in 2021 because as the AJC's Washington correspondent, I knew that it was going to be important for me to understand this city that's so important to the Carters and knowing how important the Carters are to Georgia. So I actually went to Plains in 2021, um, went to Maranatha for Sunday service, and the Carters happened to be there. And Rosalind Carter came to the back to welcome (laughs) visitors. And when she heard that I was a reporter for the AJC, she said, oh, you have to go meet Jimmy. And she marched me right up to the front row and um, passed the Secret Service. And I and um, she said, Jimmy, this lady's from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And he stuck out his hand. This was 2021. This was still coronavirus time. I said, I don't think I'm supposed to be touching you. sir." (laughs) And um, but I shook his hand and then he said, "Okay, now go sit down. It's time to start Sunday school. And I say, yes, sir. Oh, Tia, that's a beautiful story. I'm going to tell a quick one myself because I had an experience very similarly, although I started covering the Carters, you know, off and on way, way back in 1983. The last time I saw them together in public was when they brought their family a few years ago, the whole family, the kids, the grandchildren. Every year they used to do an outing together uh, in a different part of the country. But a few years ago, they decided to bring the whole family together for a long weekend in Atlanta. And they brought the family to Ebenezer Baptist Church. And of course, now Senator Raphael Warnock was uh, presiding over that service. And um, I went to see them. President Carter came up to me. Um, I didn't know that he remembered me. I hadn't seen him for quite some time, but he couldn't have been lovelier. He, he did remember me. He remembered some of the stories I'd done with him. And then he took me over to Mrs. Carter and wanted to make sure that I got a chance to say hello to her. And it reminded me that's what their life was all about. It was the two of them. It was never one of them having an experience or the other having the experience. It was together. And I have such fond memories of that brief encounter just a few years ago with both of the Carters. Very similar to your experience down at Maranatha, uh, Tia. All right, let's get to our final break. We'll have more in just a moment on Politically Georgia. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-Hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Bill Nygut. No media organization in Atlanta swarms politics like the AJC. We produce this podcast and the Politically Georgia newsletter, and now we have the new Politically Georgia PM Update newsletter. Make it your afternoon appointment to get caught up on what's going on while you're at work. You can get it in your inbox for free every weekday afternoon. Just go to AJC.com slash Politically Georgia newsletter. That's all one word, all spelled out. AJC.com slash Politically Georgia 
newsletter. Mary Margaret Oliver, State Representative Mary Margaret Oliver, is here with us, as is uh, WABE politics reporter Raul Bali and our Washington correspondent Tia Mitchell coming to us from the nation's capital. Uh, Mary Margaret, let me start with you, because this is a subject, we're only going to have a couple minutes now to talk about it. Um, all of a sudden, Republican leaders in the state house are talking about the possibility of a full expansion of Medicaid, something that Republicans have resisted for years and years. And they're talking about it in exchange for some kind of deal on changing certificates of need. What do you know about what's happening? I choose to go down to the Capitol and have hope. And so the committee meeting that uh, Raul covered last week at the Capitol, there was Republican leadership from nationally and from Georgia who stood up and talked about what has been happening in North Carolina, where there was a political public swap. North Carolina would repeal CON, Certificate of Need, in exchange for full Medicaid expansion. Georgia now is only one of 10 states that's left that has not expanded Medicaid. This is not a new issue. This has been lifted up by me and others, and a lot of discussion has been going on in the back room since we have intensified our focus on CON. Certificate of need, as you know, is a major political issue in the disparate changing market of health care. It's a pretty fierce fight. I believe it has been used as a distraction away from full Medicaid funding. And the example, the successful example of North Carolina is many other states, too, moving forward to expand Medicaid with a trade-off of eliminating CON is a path that I'm very, very hopeful we can now follow. I think that um, today we don't have enough time to talk about that balance between certificate of need and Medicaid expansion, but it is a subject as the legislature comes together that we can explain more fully, I think, to our listeners. Raul, um, we should point out that, of course, we now have this limited expansion based on a federal waiver that uh, Governor Kemp got to expand Medicaid uh, to people who, under certain conditions, they did work uh, they did public service or whatever. And so far, that waiver has brought in a very tiny number of uh, recipients of Medicaid. Yes? You're absolutely right about that. But I think the interesting thing, the interesting political argument that you may hear is Republicans say that that program was delayed by the Biden administration, that the Kemp administration tried to roll this out back in 2020, well, announced it in 2020, and roll it out later, they got delayed. So one of the political arguments you may hear about this is give the program more time. So that's one of the things that I expect to hear, but also I expect to hear what, what uh, Representative Oliver is talking about is how does this trade-off work? Because, yes, it happened in North Carolina, but, of course, every state's going to look a little different on whether the changes to CON um, and, and how that process is done in the state. All right. I, I, very briefly, I know we talk about this today, but it sets up a larger conversation that we will have on Politically Georgia, as I said, in the weeks ahead. Before we run completely out of time, though, Tia, I want to turn to one last subject that I think is fascinating. Uh, late last week, the new speaker, Mike Johnson, said he was going to release thousands and thousands of hours of videotapes of the insurrection on January 6th pressured to do so by the uh, Freedom Caucus. And apparently he has some thought 
that this is going to change people's perception of what happened that day and maybe help Barry Loudermilk, our own Barry Loudermilk, with his investiga- alternate investigation of what really happened on January 6th. We got about a minute or so for you to give us a quick uh, piece of insight about that. Yeah, I'll be quick. Um, the tapes, they've been slowly releasing the tapes, first to Tucker Carlson, then limited viewing. You had to go to the Capitol. Jamie Dupree, our our cousin of Politically Georgia, has reviewed a lot of the tapes. But now they're online for anyone to view. And again, Republicans say this is about transparency. They're challenging some of the narratives that the January 6th Select Committee that Nancy Pelosi put together pushed. But quite frankly, the tapes show us what we already know. Um, there was a lot of violence that day. And um, it's, I'm not sure if the Republicans that think that there's a different narrative to push will accomplish that, but they're going to try, it looks like. Um, Jamie Dupree reported to us that, in fact, what those videotapes show, if you really spend a lot of time looking at them, is things were just as violent as we already believe them uh, to be. That's another story that will be fascinating as Barry Loudermilk continues his alternate investigation of January 6th. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta weekdays at 10 a.m. Or look for Politically Georgia in your favorite podcast app sometime around one o'clock each afternoon. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again on Monday at 10 for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.